How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everybody the opportunity to make sure they're in fellowship and ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we look out across our nation, we see that this country, this nation grounded so firmly at one time upon the principles of your word has turned its back upon those eternal, timeless principles of truth and has sought truth in the realm of experience and feeling and has sought to seek absolutes in the realm of their own uh, peers. And yet, Father, we see the results of that as the debt increases and there continues to be more and more uh, polarization within the culture. Father, the only hope is your word. The only hope is a return back to an understanding that you are the God who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, and that uh, you have revealed yourself to us in your word, and only on the basis of the absolutes of your word, both in terms of social as well as spiritual and moral absolutes, can we have stability as a as a culture. Father, we see many things and hear many things coming out of our uh, national government that are quite alarming as uh, time-honored laws and uh, the recognition of the fact that our freedoms and our rights come from you are being uh, talked about in very threatening ways. We pray for wisdom as we see what goes on. We pray that we might have the courage as believers to continue to put the focus upon Jesus Christ because he is the issue and the only issue. And only on the basis of Christ and your word can we ever see things truly turn back. And so, Father, we pray for uh, courage to do that. We pray that we might be diligent in our study of your word and continue to press forward in our own spiritual life because only when we have a, a, a strong, strong foundation of truth in our soul where we have internalized this will we be able to face and surmount the storms that may be on the horizon. We pray that you'd guide and direct our thinking this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans 8, and we're going to look at some uh, interesting things tonight in terms of our passage. But before we get into the section that we're focusing on, which is in Romans 8, uh, 13 through 17, which focuses both on the doctrines of adoption and heirship, which are crucial to understanding. I just thought I would uh, lighten the mood a little bit and point out some historically uh, humorous mistranslations of Scripture. 1 Peter 3.7 is a verse that uh, should be translated, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them, that is, with your wives, uh, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. And as being heirs together, see this, it's all relevant, heirs together, so that fits our topic this evening, of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, in Matthew's Bible, which was an early translation uh, made of the Greek New Testament in 1537, this verse was was uh, mistranslated in the um, in the notes that were included in the Matthew Bible in 1537, so that it became known as the Wife Beater's Bible. And in that footnote it read, And if she be not obedient and helpful unto him, endeavoreth to beat the fear of God into her head, that thereby she may be compelled to learn her duty and do it. It's one reason that is not a very well-known translation today. Then another example is from Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And once again, this fits our topic tonight, dealing with the sons of God as a term for mature believers, not just a term for those who are children of God by faith alone in Christ alone. But this is a verse for all of the homemakers, 
listening. Uh, it was translated in the Geneva Bible in 1562 as blessed are the placemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. So for those who set the table, this is their verse and their Bible. Psalm 119, 161 was called the, uh, because of the mistranslation there, was called the printer's Bible. Should be translated, princes uh, persecute me, uh, uh, persecute me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. The Geneva Bible translated that printers persecute me uh, without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. So that was another little mistranslation. Then one of the most famous uh, Bibles with the printer's error was called the Adulterer's Bible. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 14 says, You shall not commit adultery, but the printer dropped out the word not. And uh, <clears throat> in the King James Version published in 1631, it read, Thou shalt commit adultery. Only uh, <clears throat> the printers were fined 300 pounds for their error. Most of the copies were gathered up and destroyed. Only 11 are known to exist today. And then another verse we should probably get to this evening is 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, etc., etc. But in the unrighteous Bible, a King James translation and printing in 1653, they dropped the word not again. That's one of those uh, troublesome little words. And it reads, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall inherit the kingdom of God. So these are kind of fun little tidbits of history. At John 8, 11, uh, this uh, mistranslation of this passage uh, led to one uh, translation, King James Version of 1716, being called the Sinner's Bible, when um, Jesus is uh, interviewing the woman caught in adultery. The passage says, uh, she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. But the sinner's Bible translated, go and sin on more. So you've got to make sure you get those, those letters in the right order or it can just cause all kinds of problems. Then there's the fool's Bible, which was a King James Version printed in 1763 which reads, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And once again, they dropped out that troublesome little word, no. And it said, the fool has said in his heart, there is a God. And the printers were fined 3,000 pounds and all the copies destroyed. So that shows the importance of, uh, of getting it right. And one of the things I'm going to point out tonight is that that error can creep in not just by switching the letters in a word like no to on or dropping out a word like not, but you can lead to a problem just by um, inserting a comma in the wrong place. So let's turn to look at Romans 8.15. Romans 8.15. This, this whole section here is talking about the contrast uh, between those who are living according to the flesh which is talking about believers, as I pointed out in the past, believers who are living according to the flesh, walking according to the sin nature, same category as Paul warns the Galatians about in Galatians 5, 16 and following, that there's a war between the spirit and the flesh and that we need to walk, if we're not walking according to the spirit, we're walking according to the flesh. And so believers do live or walk according to the flesh, as I pointed out in the last class, and the warning here is that there will be death. That is not eternal condemnation death, but a death that is the result of a death-like existence because we're not living on the basis of God's Word and the grace of God's Word. So it, by the time we get to verse 14, it reads, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. I pointed out last time that the term here is important. It's not children of God, techna. It is the sons of God, huios, talking about their maturity. Huios is a term for an adult son, not just a child. So those who are led, who actually follow the Spirit and walk according to the Spirit, uh, grow to spiritual maturity. And then in explanation, verse 15 comes along, and Paul says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery. That was the whole 
focus of Romans chapter 6, that because at the instant of salvation we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, therefore we become a new creature in Christ, and we're no longer slaves to the sin nature, but we are slaves to righteousness, positionally in terms of our new family, our new identity. So he says, you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again, to fear. That's what characterized you as an unbeliever. But you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, which is a term of close intimacy indicating uh, becoming a family member in the family of God. And so the contrast is between those who are sons of God, huias, growing to maturity, versus those who are merely children of God who have been redeemed and adopted into the family of God. So that brought us to the doctrine of adoption, which I covered partially last time, looking at the cultural or historical background, pointing out that in Greek adoption, uh, the focus was an emphasis on uh, family relationship and emphasized uh, the one who was adopted coming into the family and accepting all the legal obligations and religious duties of a genuine son in the family. And so Paul uh, uses aspects of Greek adoption when he's emphasizing the fellowship and family responsibilities of the believer. In contrast, the Roman concept of adoption was much more uh, rigorous and demanding on the one who was adopted. And this was partially based on their strong uh, emphasis on the authority of the father. There, the Roman law was called the uh, patria potestis, or the power of the father. And this, in the Roman system, a son is is no better than a slave until he reaches maturity, he reaches adulthood at about the age of 14. And until then, he's treated like a slave, has no rights, no privileges, the father it can even just just turn him out to slavery, turn anyone in the family out to slavery if he so desires. He had complete, uh, complete control. And I pointed out several other facets of that last time. What I want to go on to do tonight without reviewing that too much is looking at the spiritual significance of adoption in the Scriptures. Uh, based on the Roman concept of of uh of adoption where the 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 child the son is placed under the complete authority of a tutor or it's or it's the greek is a pedagogue uh the pedagogue had all of the authority the child the son in the house had none this is the analogy that paul uses in galatians and in galatians paul develops this out emphasizing that uh he's drawing a, a focus on on Christ, uh, believers under the law as being similar to a child that is under a pedagogue. He just has no freedom whatsoever. He's completely under the authority of that pedagogue. And so this is developed by Paul in Galatians, uh, in Galatians chapters, uh, chapter 3, verses uh, 26. And following there, he talks about you are all sons of God uh, through faith and it ties that to the baptism by the Holy Spirit, which occurs to all. And then later on, he develops the whole analogy in relation to the um, in relation to the pedagogue. And essentially what he is doing is showing that in the history of the human race, uh, Israel under the pedagogue is limited and they don't have freedom and the pedagogue dictates every aspect of their existence and the pedagogue is the Mosaic law. But at adulthood, which comes uh, at the time of Christ, when Christ pays the penalty for sin, the role of the pedagogue is over and the child now becomes an adult son with all of the rights and privileges uh, which God gives them. And so the church age believer is compared to that um, uh, mature son who has reached, uh, reached maturity and now has freedom and now has 
uh, all the position and responsibilities given to an adult son. And so this is related to the fact that the believer is identified and placed in Christ, who is the adult son, the huias of God. And so because of our position uh, with an identification with Christ, then we have these privileges positionally. So there is now uh, freedom uh, for the believer. That gives us that background on understanding adoption so that we are adopted into God's family. As part of adoption and being a member of the family, this leads to another important uh, aspect of our spiritual life, which is inheritance. If you are a child, then you are usually considered in a position where you can inherit property from your parents. And in our understanding of inheritance, someone has to die, and then whatever they owned is passed on to the next generation. That is not the main idea in the Jewish Old Testament concept of inheritance. And I've gone through lengthy studies of that, and basically in the Old Testament, the core meaning of the word inheritance is possession. Someone can have a for example, have an allotment of land in the promised land, and it is their inheritance. They own it. Nobody died and left it to them. That is their possession. So the main idea that we have in the word inheritance is really this idea of ownership and uh, and possession. That same idea does come across into the Old Testament. And so I want to review for us this doctrine of inheritance or doctrine of heirship. And this is really important because a lot of confusion comes up when people read certain passages in the New Testament, and it's because they have a preconceived idea of what inheritance uh, consists of, they misread and misinterpret a passage. Uh, Three questions that we need to address are listed up on the screen. First of all, is the concept of inheritance a synonym for receiving eternal life? For example, in Galatians chapter 5, uh, verse uh, 19 and 20, we have a list of the, or 19, 20, and 21, we have a list of the works of the flesh. They are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, etc., uh, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. And when Paul finishes, he says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, many people read inheriting the kingdom of God as being receiving eternal life. And under that interpretation, then, uh, if one commits these sins or commits them on a frequent basis, then they can't have eternal life. And that is a problem because that would then make salvation appear to be based on works or at least overcoming sin in our life. And it's, and you know, when people read these lists, they usually focus on the adultery, fornication, murder, but they overlook the outbursts of anger, uh, hatred, uh, jealousy, the mental attitude sins of envy and, um, uh, this, this is, uh, this, these sins are manifest by every believer. And it's easy to see somebody's overt sin sometimes, but it's not so easy to see the arrogance and the hatred and the anger and the resentment and the bitterness that may be going on inside of their soul. Uh, so the, what this seems to indicate, if inheritance, inheriting the kingdom means getting eternal life, then we have to earn it by getting rid of sin in our life. And that seems to be a, a conflict with many passages that talk about salvation being a free gift. Second question that we have to address in relation to that is, is an inheritance earned? Is it given? Or are aspects of both true? In other words, are some aspect of the inheritance freely given and other aspects of the inheritance earned. So is it earned, is it given, or may both be be, uh, applicable? Uh, 
And then third, we need to determine the exact meaning of this concept of, of inheritance. Now, where that comes to play in our immediate passage in Romans chapter 8 has to do with Romans 8, 16, and 17. Romans 8 says, the Spirit himself bears, uh, 8.16 says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Okay, that's a techno. And if children, then heirs. So we are heirs. And then if you have a passage like most, uh, mine has, um, New King James has an M dash between children, so that sets off the next part of this as a, a sort of a, a, a parenthetical explanation of heirs. And it's punctuated, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And notice the comma is placed after Christ. So in, according to that punctuation, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ are viewed as being identical or synonymous terms. In other words, if you are a believer, you are an heir of God, and you are also a joint heir with Christ. They would be identical based on that punctuation. Remember, there were no commas or periods, semicolons or colons, anything like that. In the original Greek, all of the letters just ran together with no spacing between them. The problem that we have with this punctuation is if we are all equally heirs of God and fellow heirs or joint heirs with Christ, then that would make those categories of inheritance dependent upon the last conditional clause there, the if clause that we would be heirs of God and heirs of Christ, not if we believe in Christ, but if we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. See, that last if clause explains that if you want to be uh, an heir of God and fellow heir with Christ, then you have to suffer with him. Well, what does that mean? And that caused a lot of problems down through the centuries in Christianity because of a misunderstanding and mispunctuation of that verse, most of your Bibles punctuate it the way that uh, I think this is a New American Standard up on the screen, the way the New American Standard punctuates it. And so this bases heirship on suffering. If you don't suffer, you won't be an heir. So the problem here is if one reading of Galatians 5 is that if you don't get rid of these sins in your life, you can't inherit eternal life, and if you don't suffer with Christ, then you won't be a joint heir with Christ. The problem with that is that doesn't sound like it fits with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that we're saved by grace and not by works. That seems like those two passages are talking about a works-based salvation. But punctuation is very important. Uh, I've used, I love this. I've used this example for years. Here we have a sentence. A woman without her man is nothing. Now, I want you to think about that a minute. Where would you put the commas? Now, if you are a woman you will probably put the commas like this. This makes the main sentence, the main clause, man is nothing. A woman without her, man is nothing. Saying that, you know, for women, women are what make men something. However, if you are a man, you will probably punctuate it like this. A woman without her man is nothing stating that the woman uh, alone just can't quite make it. So where you put those commas radically changes the meaning of the sentence. So we can look at Romans 8, 17. Uh, notice the first uh, verse up there. I have the two commas highlighted, putting a comma after also and a comma after Christ, that punctuation combines the terms heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ is the same thing. That's what I was talking about a minute ago. 
However, if we move a comma so that we place it after God, if children, heirs also, heirs of God, one category of heirship, and joint heirs with Christ if we indeed suffer with him, so that being an heir of God is related to being a child of God, and that is part of the grace package received at the instant of salvation. But to be considered a joint heir with Christ, in which there is uh, additional rewards on the basis of, uh, of suffering, that would be a second category. So this really becomes the issue. Remember this, that a gift, that salvation is a free gift, but rewards are earned. There's a big difference between something being given and something being earned. Something is given, is given with no strings attached, and there's no condition or basis uh, on uh, that that that's the foundation for for uh, receiving the gift or being given the gift but a reward is based on what we attain what we work toward what we are what we achieve uh we have uh, have a reward so <clears throat> that is the foundation of this is that uh, what i'm saying very simply is this salvation is a free gift but rewards are earned Every believer is, gets salvation as a free gift by simply trusting in Christ, and we have all certain things in common. We're justified, we're redeemed, we have a new life in Christ, we're baptized by the Holy Spirit. Every believer has those things in common. But there are some believers who pursue spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, and they realize in their experience both in time and in eternity a certain number of blessings, and God promises in Scripture a certain number of rewards because of that believer's uh, responsibility and uh, and the way he has pursued and lived his spiritual life. Whereas the one who hasn't uh, is not going to receive his blessings and rewards because he has not uh, grown to maturity, developed the capacity to handle them. So let's look at what the Bible teaches about inheritance. Just in terms of New Testament concept, the basic word is kleronomos. Kleronomos is related to the law of heirship or the law of inheritance, and its basic meaning as listed in the lexicons is for the noun is inheritance, possession, or property. Okay, it means inheritance, it means possession, it means property. So it is not, when we read that word inheritance, don't simply think about somebody dying and leaving something to you in a will. It is a, a property, something that the individual owns or something that is their possession. The verb has the basic idea to possess, to receive something as one's possession or to obtain it. So the very verbal concept there, to obtain something, purchase something, earn something, has a works connotation. So the first thing, I, all I want to do here is lay out the basic meaning is going to emphasize possession and receiving something as possession. Now, second thing that I want to point out is a verse in Hebrews 1.2. Hebrews 1.2 states that Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. That doesn't mean that the father died and he inherited it. I think this helps illustrate that principle that the concept of heirship is ownership. Heirship is ownership. Jesus Christ is the heir or the possessor or owner of all things. Now, what qualified Jesus to become the heir or owner of all things? Did he do something to earn it and qualify for it? Or was it something freely given to him? It wasn't freely given to him like in salvation. We simply believe in the gospel and we're given salvation. Jesus Christ qualified by going to the cross, dying on the cross, and by being obedient to the Father, he is elevated to this position 
over all creation, where he is the heir of all creation. So Christ is the heir of all things is because of what he did, because he fulfilled the plan of God for his life. Now, a third thing we note is that heirship is based on adoption, that is, our sonship, our relationship to God. Therefore, in one sense, we have passages that make it very clear that inheritance is related to positional truth. It's related to our position in Christ. Okay, very simply, at the moment that we trust in Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit identifies us with with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and we are placed in Christ. That's our new position. We were in Adam, now we're in Christ. So we call that positional truth. That's our new position. So we are in Christ. That is related to our our phase one salvation, our justification, where we enter into that new life with Christ. And so some passages emphasize inheritance in relation to uh, what is given to us when we first trust in Christ as Savior. Passages like Galatians 3.29 and 4.1. And if you are Christ's, and you are, first-class condition, then you are Abraham's seed. Now, what uh, Paul meant in context there is that Abraham, uh, quoting from Galatians uh, 15.6, uh, Abraham believed God, and it was accredited, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, in Galatians chapter three, uh, Paul develops this whole analogy related to Abraham, and that Abraham is uh, seed is a very important concept. And those who are truly Abraham's seed or Abraham's descendants are those who follow him by faith in God's promise. So if you are Christ, then you are also Abraham's seed because, as he pointed out earlier in in the passage, that this phrase seed uh, is related to Christ. Galatians 3.16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say that as God does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, singular, who is Christ. So Christ is the seed. So if we are Christ, that is Abraham's seed, then we are also Abraham's seed and heirs according to promise. Now, that's one category of heirship. That's the first category that's related to the free gift. The promise was a free gift to Abraham. So Paul goes on to say in Galatians 4.1, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. See, this is where he develops that idea of the of the pedagogue. He goes on in the next verse, but he's under guardians and stewards. The guardian, there's the pedagogue. Even so, when we were children, uh, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. So he's talking about the fact that as using the timeline of history, before the cross, uh, Jews were under the law, and they do not have the rights and privileges of adult sons at that point. So they are, even though they are the child, they their rights don't differ from that of a slave. So then he develops that. But all, the only point I'm making here is heirship is based on adoption. You get the Roman concept, you get adopted, you're in the family, but if you're under the age of, of your majority, if you're under 14, then you're just treated like a slave. Fourth observation, still in Galatians 3.29, that heirship in one category, the grace aspect, is based on the grace promise of the Abrahamic covenant. It's a free pro- It's a promise. It's not based on earning it. It's that if we have faith in, in God, faith in the promise of God in the Old Testament, then just like Abraham, righteousness is credited to the individual. Now, to be an heir of the Father, who is eternal, the heir must also have eternal life. That's the fifth point. Heirship demands eternal life because the son, if we're adopted into the family, must have the same life as the father. 
we will continue to live in the family of God in heaven. So Titus 3.5 says that uh, he saved us not on the basis of works which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So we're saved not on the basis of deeds we have done. So it's not on the basis of giving up certain sins or not committing them as much. It's not on the basis of um, of suffering with Christ. It's a, a salvation is a free gift. It's not on the basis of things we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom, the next verse goes on to say, the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. This happens at the instant of salvation. That being justified by his grace, phase one salvation, when we trust in Christ, we're justified, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now notice, justification is the foundation for making us heirs in relation to the hope of eternal life. So this is a phase one aspect of the inheritance, eternal life, uh, life without end in heaven. Sixth point is that heirship also means to share the inheritance, or I mean to share the destiny of Christ, uh, to share the destiny of Christ. Christ's destiny has been set from eternity past to rule and reign, and we are to will rule and reign with him. Christ has an eternal destiny, and we will share it with him, uh, as we share his election. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now, sharing the destiny of Christ, according to Romans 8, is based upon suffering with Christ, not just being positionally in Christ. Now, 1 Peter 1, three, going back to uh, Titus 3.5, we're heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 1 Peter 1.3 connects that, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Okay, so birth at, at salvation. When we first trust in Christ, we, we're born again to this living, uh, living hope. So the seventh point here is that inheritance then is both a present reality and a future possession. Uh, Ephesians 1.11, we have obtained an inheritance. Uh, but this is reserved in heaven for us. First Peter 1, 4, and 5, it's an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, uh, ready to be revealed in the last time. So the point in all of this, what I'm simply saying is, that there are two aspects to this inheritance. One is related to the free gift given at the instant we believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. At that instant, part of that package is that we are adopted into the royal family of God and we become heirs of God, heirs of God in relation to eternal life, heirs of God in relation to hope. But there's a second aspect to inheritance that requires spiritual growth. And as we grow, then these blessings, Ephesians 1, 3 says that we've been already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, that those blessings become distributed to us as we grow. It's as if you as a father give a gift of something valuable, a car, land, a home to, a, to an infant child. He doesn't have actual ownership rights or possession yet because he hasn't developed the maturity to, to handle it. Once he grows to maturity, then that is given to him from a trustee or uh, someone of that nature, and he, can't, he can enjoy it. It's his potentially, but it's not his actually until he grows to maturity and develops the capacity uh, to handle it. Now, this whole concept of inheritance is 
also directly related to the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So our whole spiritual life in this church age is so dependent upon these ministries of the Holy Spirit, the baptism by the Holy Spirit, uh, walking by the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, and now we see the sealing of the Spirit. Ephesians one thirteen and 14 says that, uh, Paul says, in him also, in him, that's positional truth, our position in Christ, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed at that instant of faith alone in Christ alone, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the Holy Spirit is given to us. We're sealed into Christ. The Holy Spirit is given to us as a down payment for a future realization of that inheritance. That's verse 14. He is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Okay, so the Holy Spirit is given as a down payment indicating something greater that will come in the future. So airship also includes something related to eternal security, this inheritance that is undefiled mentioned in Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, and spelled out again in 1 Peter 1, 4 through 5, that this uh, inheritance is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away and is reserved for us in heaven. And what protects us is the power of God, not our obedience. God's, God protects us, not our obedience, and this is done through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. Now, the ninth point related to what I already said, the Holy Spirit's a down payment of our inheritance. When we're sons, God has sent forth his spirit into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, indicating a sign of that adoption, that intimacy with the Father. Uh, Ephesians 1, 4 is a pledge of our inheritance. Okay, those are the first nine points. I went through those fairly quickly. We've gone through that. For some of you, that's review. For some of you, that is new. It's very simple. Let me boil it down. Inheritance has two aspects. Number one, an aspect that's true for every believer as a child of God, a member of the family of God, adopted into the family of God at the instant of salvation. But for the sons who press, the, the children who press on to become the huias, the sons of God, there are additional blessings and rewards that are qualified for through obedience, through faithful uh, living, walking by uh, God the Holy Spirit. The problem we have today is that people don't make this distinction in terms of theology. They, they mush it all together and end up with a works kind of salvation or a kind of salvation that is uh, only known on the basis of one's works. So if you don't have the right kind of works, well, you weren't really saved. And this is the problem under point 10, is that, that this confuses the, the two images of, being, of salvation being a free gift, but a free gift is free. It's something that is given with no strings attached and not on the basis of any, any condition, whereas a reward is earned. And this inheritance is also clearly spoken of as something that is earned through uh, behavior. Uh, I'll give you some passages to show those distinctions. For example, in Ephesians 5.5, 5, as well as Galatians 5:19 to 21, we have these lists of, of people who commit certain sins, uh, covetous, idolater, immoral, adultery, whatever they are. In Ephesians 5:5, 5, 5, the one who commits these things, um, that no, no one who commits these things has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Well, wait a minute, if salvation's a free gift, then why don't I have an inheritance in the kingdom of God? Well, if we equate inheritance with the kingdom of God with getting eternal life, then we have a problem. But if inheritance has to do with additional rewards and blessings and roles and responsibilities in the kingdom, then that's predicated upon doing well now. Another illustration I've used um, is, is someone who goes 
um, goes into the military and goes through boot camp. And this life is like boot camp. And there are those who are going to do very well in boot camp, those who may not do so well in boot camp. When they come out of boot camp, they're all still in the army. But those who have performed well may have and will have opportunities to go to additional uh, training schools and have greater advancement and promotion opportunities because they performed well and developed their skills during the period of boot camp and basic training. And so this life is analogous in that example to basic training. We're all going through basic training. Some of us are excelling. Others of us aren't doing so well. Those who excel develop capacity for leadership. They have they learn wisdom and skill at living, which is what we're studying in Proverbs, so that when we go to the judgment seat of Christ, they're going to have a capacity, a maturity, uh, a level of resp- spiritual responsibility and leadership for which they are rewarded, and they will be given... Um, uh, they will be given positions of responsibility and leadership in the kingdom, in the future millennial kingdom, that, that relates to their level of maturity. But those who have frittered away their time on the earth or in biblical language have not redeemed the time, and they've just wasted the time and they haven't matured spiritually, they've lived the life of the fool, they have been uh, conformed to the world, and they haven't been too concerned about uh, where what God is doing in our life today in preparation for eternity, then at the judgment seat of Christ, most of what they've produced in this life is going to burn up like wood, hay, and straw, and there's not going to be much left that qualifies them for any kind of responsibility or leadership in the coming kingdom because they didn't develop the capacity for leadership and responsibility in this life, in dealing with all of the problems of living in the cosmic system, dealing with Satan, and dealing with personal sin. So those who practice these sins, because they fail to walk by the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, 19 to 21, those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Will they be there? Yes, they will. Will they have positions of responsibility and leadership? No, they won't. They will be present but they won't have various privileges. Colossians 3.24 states, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. A reward is something that is given for a job well done. Uh, Another way of looking at this is like a sports contract where a player is guaranteed a certain amount of income, but then he has various incentive clauses for performing well so that he may be guaranteed an income of uh, 300 or 400 or $500,000 no matter what happens. But if he plays well, and that would be spelled out as to what that meant, if he makes it to certain postseason games and the, and the team does well, then he will get additional bonuses that could number in the millions and millions of dollars. And that's analogous. Every believer gets the same contract. We're all going to get eternal life. We're all going to get paid a base salary, which means we're going to spend eternity in heaven. But there's an incentive clause in the Scripture, and that is if you do well, if you pursue maturity, if you live out on the basis of the Word of God and grow and study, then because there are uh, there are qualities and character that's produced in your life through walking by the Holy Spirit that's analogous to gold, silver, and precious stones that survives the judgment seat of Christ, then there will be additional blessings and privileges and responsibilities. So the, the Bible doesn't talk about uh, the future kingdom in a Marxist-Leninist framework. We're not all going to have the same thing. We're not all going to be given the same thing. There are going to be distinctions based on ability and performance. And that's why some will be uh, in certain positions that uh, are of influence and leadership and others will not. So what we see in terms of a conclusion is that there are two categories of inheritance. The first is inheriting the kingdom 
this is mentioned in Ephesians 5, 5, and 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, and secondly, inheriting salvation. We all inherit salvation. We're all uh, heirs of God, but not all will inherit the kingdom. Not all will be a joint heir with Christ. Those terms are conditioned. So Romans eight seventeen: if children, heirs also, and it should be heirs of God, that's everybody, and joint heirs with Christ if we suffer with him. So if we want to be a joint heir with Christ, we have to suffer with him. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we're going to go out and be martyrs? No, that's not what that means. It, what it means is that if you and I are living in the devil's world, are pursuing spiritual maturity, we are going to suffer. You don't have to go look for it. It will find you. It will find you frequently because you will be running and living in contradiction to the to the zeitgeist, the heartbeat, the desires of the, the people, the culture around you. And as a result of living in the devil's world, you're going to encounter a lot of suffering. You're going to encounter a lot of adversity. And I'm going to come back and cover that uh, when we get into the next section in Romans because this is really where Paul segues into that next uh, next section because he, he recognizes this. Verse 17, he introduces the concept of suffering, if indeed we suffer with him. And then he says in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed uh, in us. And so we're going to get into that doctrine of suffering and adversity uh, when we get into the, the next verse. So, point 12. Just as Christ inherits the kingdom in Psalm 2, 8 to 9, it talks about him being uh, elevated, being given the kingdoms of the world at the uh, time in which there's that great revolt at the end times. Uh, Christ inherits the kingdom due to his loyalty to God the Father. So he becomes the heir, the heir of all things. Due to his loyalty to the Father, advancing to spiritual maturity, fulfilling God's plan for his life. The same is true for us as joint heirs with Christ. We pursue the plan of God in our life, grow to spiritual maturity, and there will be rewards for us. Uh, Hebrews 1, 8 and 9 states, But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. That's what qualified him to be the heir of all things. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil, the oil of gladness more than your companions. He's elevated because of his perfect obedience. Now, another thing I should note is that there's a difference between living with Christ and reigning with Christ. There's a difference between being an heir of God and being a joint heir of Christ. 2 Timothy 2 lays this out in the first, uh, in verse 11, 2 Timothy 2.11. It is a trustworthy statement. And then this is should be set up in poetry. It's not New American Standard. For if we died with him, when do we die with Christ? the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, uh, baptism by the Holy Spirit, identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. If we died with Christ, what happens? We shall live with him. That is true for every single believer. If you died with Christ, it's because you trusted in him as your Savior and you are identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. And the result will be you will live with him. If we endure... Ah, now there's works, enduring, persevering. If we endure, we shall also notice that. Not just living with him, but in addition to living with him, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. So enduring, that's related to suffering, additional rewards, we shall reign with him. 
But if we deny him, that is, if you live your life and you're more concerned about your personal pleasures and issues in life than you are studying the word and growing to maturity, if we deny him, he will deny us. Now, not denial of eternal salvation, that's covered in the next verse, but denial of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. If we deny him, you live your life apart from Christ as a believer, then you will be denied privilege, position, responsibility, leadership in the coming kingdom. He will deny us rewards. Second Timothy 2.13 then says, If we are faithless, now the we means believers. Faithless doesn't mean we, did, we, we were unbelievers. It means as believers we just didn't trust Christ and we just didn't trust God and we just didn't grow to maturity. Even though we're faithless, he remains faithful. That is, we will still be saved because we are preserved by his faithfulness. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Why? We, are, we have been identified with him. We've been placed in Christ. We are his. He can't deny us. And so even though we're faithless, he's not going to kick us out. We can't lose salvation. Thus, the kingdom has been promised to those who love God. Not all believers love God. Love for God is expressed through obedience to God, and those who are obedient to him and grow to spiritual maturity will receive an inheritance in the kingdom. Now, there's a great illustration, just to wrap up, of Esau in the Old Testament. Esau was still Isaac's son. Remember Abraham? Couldn't have any children. God promised him that he would have a son, and through his son there would be many nations. And he gave birth to Isaac, or or, uh, Sarah gave birth to Isaac. And then Isaac married Rebekah, and Rebekah had twins, Esau and Jacob. And Esau sold his inheritance, traded it out, came home from a hunting trip, tired, worn out, hungry. Uh, Jacob had fixed a nice meal of lentil soup. And uh, Esau said, well, if I die, if I starve to death right now, my inheritance isn't going to do me any good. So he treated it cavalierly and with disrespect, and he traded it off to Isaac for uh, just a mess of pottage, just for a, a bowl of soup. And so that's the issue. It's not that Esau, that passage isn't talking about Esau and his eternal destiny. It's talking about the fact that he willingly gave up his uh, the 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 potential of his inheritance for just a bowl of soup. He 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 traded out eternal rewards for immediate personal gratification, and that's what we do all the time. We const- we constantly choose to sin in some area rather than walking by the Spirit. What we're doing is we're trading out eternal rewards, gold, silver, and precious stones, for immediate gratification. So Esau is the example of that. See, uh, writer of Hebrews says, See that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, see, he had a change of heart. He repented, my, my. He changed his mind. He, he said, you know, that was really valuable. I made a mistake. Uh, but there are some things we can't go back and recapture. When he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, not for salvation, uh, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it for it with tears. He truly changed his mind, but you can't go back and remake decisions you failed with in the past. You may get other opportunities to make other decisions, but you can't go back and do it over again. As I used to say to my students when I was a public school teacher, no do-overs, one shot, that's it, Okay. So uh, Esau did get a blessing. Genesis twenty-seven thirty-eight to 39, Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, my father. Then Isaac, his father, uh, answered in verse 39, said to him, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven from above. And by your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. So he still receives a little bit of a blessing, but he doesn't get the main inheritance which went to the Abrahamic seed in the line of the Abrahamic covenant. 
So Esau lost his inheritance blessing, but not his position as Isaac's son. So we may lose inheritance blessing, but we don't lose our position in the family of God. Okay, that wraps that up. I want to come back next time and deal with some of those tough passages before we move on, dealing with looking at a little more detail at some of the inheritance uh, issues. So we'll do that uh, next time. Let's uh, close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things, and may God the Holy Spirit uh, drive home these principles that we realize that every moment counts. Every day we need to redeem the time because we don't get to recover the time. And we have opportunities to walk by the Spirit, to live for you, to let the Holy Spirit produce in us that which has eternal value. And so often we're like Esau, and we trade out immediate personal gratification for and and, get, and forget about the long-term uh, the long-term plan that you have to prepare us to rule and reign with Christ in the kingdom. We pray that we might not take our inheritance lightly as Esau took it lightly. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.